and welcome to Blue Royalty, a London is Blue podcast dedicated to the Chelsea women's team. It is me, Jess Mark Humphreys, and I'm back with Abdullah. Abdullah, we have the dream team in place for the first time this World Cup. We've managed to make the time difference work. We found an off day, effectively, that's that's going to allow us to chat. So, Abdullah, how are you doing? How have you been? It's been good, yeah. I, I've missed having you on. You know, it's it's been weird not not recording with you for for a few weeks. So it was it was uh, it was a strange one, but good good to be back. A um, little bit under the weather this this last couple of days, but you know what? I, I believe you were the same. So, but we're surviving. We're watching the World Cup, and uh, yeah, we just I'm just taking in the games and enjoying the fact that we only have like three, four more games before we have to wait another four years for another World Cup. Oh, and another two years for an international tournament. But you know, it is what it is. Yeah, we've definitely got to the point in the World Cup, which is good when it's like it doesn't feel like we're nonstop. For anyone who's missed out, the quarterfinals finished yesterday. So we had quarterfinals on Friday and Saturday. And now we've got two days before the semifinals take place on Tuesday and Wednesday. And these are good moments to take stock about what's going on, because in the earliest rounds, it's just like crazy how full on it goes. And... Abdullah, these quarterfinal games were just, I think in terms of like four games at a stage in a World Cup, like they all had so much going for them. Like even the fact that the only game that was nil-nil then went to this like insane penalty shootout, it felt like every team was still in these matches from the start to the end. It was was such an exciting round of fixtures. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think some people would have seen. I, I I tweeted it a few times. I was just a nervous wreck for two days. Like it was so end to end every game that even and and it got to the point where even the games where you think that one team should be beating the other, it, it's like it wasn't happening. Like you you could like there could have there very easily could have been a world where Colombia beat England yesterday because they they were playing really well this World Cup. So it wasn't like nothing was the foregone conclusion. And I think because of that, we got some really good games. I felt like tactically it's been one of the best major tournaments I've seen from 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 a host of nations in terms of the quantity and quality that even teams that you wouldn't expect um to, you know to, to to have some sort of identity and idea they're coming up they're coming through with things we've had some really you know um unexpected teams in this round of, in the quarterfinals in round of 16 so I, I think overall it's just been um it's just been top notch and and I'm, I've really really enjoyed it so far yeah, definitely. Uh, it's been it's been really fascinating, and I think you're so right. You know, the, the tactical level just feels so high in this tournament. And seeing the different teams, sort of how they want to match up to each other, how their systems play out, I think it's been something that's been really, really fascinating. Um, obviously, we, we've been giving you kind of a Chelsea angle on the tournament so far. We've got to a point whereby there's still a lot of Chelsea players, but there's not as many as there were. So we're going to approach this a bit more generally. We're going to just talk through the four quarterfinals, what stood out to us, what we liked. Obviously, we'll fill you in on how the Chelsea players did. Some did better than others, I can't lie. Um, But we will talk through, we're going to have a more general chat just because there's so much fascinating stuff, I think, to unpick within these games. And Abdullah, I feel like I've obviously got recency bias here, but I want to start with England and Colombia, partly because this was the game which I think had two of the best Chelsea performances that we saw in this round for Millie Bright and Jess Carter, who both started in this game. No Lauren James, obviously, because of that red card. So Ella Toon came in for her. But 
We were just talking before we came on. Um, I was at this game and I think we both came away feeling pretty impressed with England. Obviously, this tournament, I think, has been a lot of ups and downs for them. Some of them through faults of their own, some of them through no faults of their own. Um, and it's hard to sort of sit here and be like, okay, maybe this is the moment they really get in gear. Because I think we felt like that maybe after the China game. But this definitely felt like a very accomplished performance against a Colombia team who we've seen can cause like big sides serious problems. Yeah, I mean, you, you only have to look at the way um, England marked out and tried to, to keep uh, Linda Caicedo uh, you know, off the pitch. There was a plan to, to try and stop her and, and, and try and get her to, to stop going. Myra Ramirez has been playing really, really well, really good hold-up play. Um, I've really liked Durango at the base of midfield for Colombia. So there have been a few players that um, that have really impressed uh, in this Colombia side. And, and, and obviously that in itself, you know, when you, when you look at England and the way they probably... I don't want to say struggled because I think that maybe is, is too much, but like they did have some problems against Haiti and, and, and Denmark and, and teams like that in the group stages where you were like, okay, can Eng like England won those games, but the performances weren't great. And I felt like this one overall was really good. And I think you look at that defense um, quite clearly, this is now become the first choice for England. I, I thought the three of them played really, really well. And I think they've been the unsung heroes for England's success so far. I think, if they do make it past Australia. And I think Australia's front line is definitely a lot more, uh, a lot tougher. I mean, if, if you assume that maybe maybe Sam Kerr comes back in to start, I mean, we, we don't know yet, but let's assume maybe she does. You've got Sam Kerr, Mary Fowler, Caitlin Ford as your front three, which is a very, very tough proposition to, to come up against. And obviously, Jess and Millie know how to play up against Sam Kerr, but it's, it's, it's never easy. And, uh, but... You know, I think I think the combination of the three at the back, uh, the way Daly and, and I think Daly and Bronze have played in, in general. I think Serena's just given them a different sort of license to to, to play. And overall, I, I just think it's um, I, I think it works. So, yeah, and I've been I've been really impressed with with England, you know, yesterday specifically. And I think it's a it's a combination of the way they've been playing this entire World Cup, just kind of coming through into one really top performance, you know, with the exception of maybe over the first like five minutes or so of the game. Yeah, definitely. There, there were definitely some moments, but I think, you know, it's unreal. I think what we've seen at this World Cup is it's really unrealistic to expect teams, especially when you've got to this stage of the competition, just to like totally dominate a game. As as we've said, you know, literally every team aside from Australia and France who kind of played their own stalemate out conceded from the, from the team they were against. I think that's part of what what made made these games so exciting. But I think what was really impressive from an England perspective was that they came from behind and they were the only team to do that. In fact, they were the only team to do that across both across you know the round of 16 as well um obviously Lacey Santos scores this incredible goal we see the ball float over Mary Earps's head as we've kind of been come accustomed to I think as an England fan I just accept it at this point um it's also a fantastic strike from Santos um but I think what was really exciting was how quickly and intensely England tried to to get back into the game um, and then obviously they kind of got the equaliser from Catalina Perez spilling the ball, a bit of an unfortunate one from a Colombian perspective. And I think when England went in 1-1 at half time, I just, I just felt like given the number of penalty box entries they'd had, even in the first half, that like they were going to get more chances in, in the second. And 
obviously we saw Alessia Russo maybe at her best with with that goal really lovely link up with with Stanway um to score that uh so what did you make it'd be intriguing to see what you thought of I think a player who got a lot of stick in this game was Ella Toon who I don't think I was down as bad on as everyone else but obviously she was replacing Lauren James um what kind of differences do you think you see between like Toon and James when they're playing within this England team I think people have to look at this kind of from from two different lenses I think First of all, and it's probably the most obvious thing to say, both of them are two different types of players. Like the way they both play, the way they both operate from the number 10 position is totally different. You look at someone like Lauren James, who is um, someone who, who loves being on the ball, very silky, great dribbling, tight spaces, kind of run around and kind of does things on her own and, and is able to kind of just, likes to kind of drift maybe to, to the, the wide areas, drift inside and shoot. Whereas I think with Ella Toon, you're looking at someone who's a little bit more proactive off the ball, um, will run around, will help you press, and has some decent uh, on-ball presence with her as well. And I think what, I, what with her is she loves running the channels and she loves probably linking up in a traditional sense a lot more. With with Lauren James, probably you're getting those those very much quicker one-twos kind of in and around within Lesser Russo or Lauren Hamp or whoever is in coming in around the side. But with like Ella Toon, you're going to get someone who can do that, but will also then play the channels, make those off-ball runs into the channels, allow the space for Lauren Hem to kind of drive inside or Alessa Russo to take up more spaces and kind of be in space. And the, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I can see why people were, were giving a hard time to Ella Toon yesterday, but I think looking at the context of the game and looking at the way Colombia wanted to set up in this really compact back line, back four, I think you needed Ella Toon regardless. You know, I would have actually made a call saying that Ella Toon starts over Lauren James <clears throat> even in this game because if they're going to play compact then they're going to have a single six or a double six playing there, you need someone who's going to make runs to try and open up that defense and open up that compactness. And I think Ella Toon gives you that. She's got decent creativity. She knows how to pick a pass and she's got that connection with Lester Russo. So um, I think a lot of the things that, that happened in the game yesterday probably were nothing that happened on the ball. A lot of stuff probably happened off the ball. And just, yeah, maybe there was an element of, of confidence lost, but I, th- I thought she did, she did a decent job playing as, a, as that number 10 yesterday in, in the circumstances and for the tactical reasons of the game. Yeah, I think something that I also found really interesting, and I don't know whether this was because Lauren James's absence kind of freed her up to do this, but we saw Lauren Hemp driving with the ball a lot more in that way that normally we see James do within this England team. It's always surprised me that it feels like Hemp does this a lot less for England than she does for Man City, when I think it's it's one of the one of her strongest attributes, to be honest. Um, and I think from an English perspective, I, I was really pleased to see her playing in that way. Obviously, we that front two between Russo and Hemp has at points felt like a bit of a strange one, I think, but I thought they worked really well together in this game. Um, let's let's talk about the defence, uh, and specifically let's talk about Millie and Jess. Um, Jess, I thought in particular, was was absolutely outstanding, Abdullah, and the biggest compliment that basically Colombia could give her was that they had to move Linda Caicedo from attacking on the left to have her attack on the right, like in the last half-hour game, because Jess had just totally marked her out of the game. It was a very familiar um kind of approach i think for jess in terms of how we've seen her play for for chelsea against like top opponents in recent years she gets very very tight to players and that always makes me nervous but it feels like players really struggle to spin her when she's when she's in that position and to be honest the only time kaiseido got away with her was actually when there was a mix up between bronze and jess um it wasn't really on jess it was more i don't know what loose bronze was doing um but yeah like obviously kaiseido is 
also, you know, I think she's very talented. But I think what was really exciting um, in this was it felt like it felt like I really saw Jess as a grown up in that moment that she felt like mature enough and in control enough and confident enough to just be like, it felt like Caicedo became the precocious kid again, rather than the, the power she's had against some teams where it's been like, she's just this like all powerful creative force. Yeah. And, and um, I think Jess in the last six months has kind of, slowly grown from this like you said like this 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 kid who's almost playing in defense and kind of learning her craft to i think now six months later almost has has now become this i'm only saying this for the sake of for the sake of the argument but like almost like this fully accomplished defender now in her own right who knows who probably could can be considered as one of the um one of the main center backs like not someone who's just inexperienced and is learning and is obviously you're always learning but she 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 gives this performances and things of look I know what I'm doing I have some experience now and I feel a bit more accomplished in my position. You're I think she's deceptively quick. Like we always look at her and think of her as someone that you know if you if you give a defender a couple of yards or any, kind of from anywhere they will outrun her. But like yesterday I think there was a sprint out on the on on the right side where Caicedo almost looked like she had she went on the outside of Jess and trying to go there. But I was so surprised with how close Jess kept her. And in the end, she had to make she had to check back and, and try and find another way rather than from the outside, go from the inside. And I think that alone was probably the moment where where they thought, all right, we need to move Caicedo over to the other side because it's not working. And I think with Jess, it's it's just that if you if she gets close to you, you you're not gonna get out. You're not gonna get out because I think her physicality with the pace that she does have is so so good and so strong that players find it tough to get get off her. It's like it's like a weight hanging on you because if she's next to you shoulder to shoulder it's almost like she's glued to you and there's it's very difficult for you to get out and the fact that she had to go and and lucy bronze was playing very high yesterday let's that's not real like lucy bronze was playing very high and the fact that she had to cover for her own space and lucy bronze space for, for the majority of the game and force kaiseido to go to the other side i mean i think that's that's a representation of how good and, and how important jess has become i mean i mean if i if i take this forward for for a little bit Jess has to start for Chelsea. I mean, this the way she's playing, I, I don't see how with Buchanan's performances in six months, Jess's performances in the last six months, and the way she's played in this World Cup, how do you not play Jess Carter, right? And I think that's a testament. 18 months ago, a year ago, would you be coming around and saying, hey, listen, we're going to be buying Kadisha Buchanan, but you know what? Six months, a year after she's here... Jess Carter's probably the one who should be starting over Kadish weekend. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought of that at all. Like no, no one would have. And that's a testament to the way Jess has played. So I've really enjoyed it. I think I think Jess has just improved, and um, I think she will have the odd game where where she will struggle. But I think those those gains will be far and few away. Yeah, I agree. I think it feels very hard to not see Jess Carter as a starter at Chelsea at the moment, given the level of performance we've seen. Um, just a quick one for Millie Bright, who I thought was excellent, but in the way she always is, which doesn't always get commented on. Um, but I actually thought, you know, Carter, Bright and Greenwood, all, all three of them together were really key for, Eng especially when England were 2-1 up. Like, they just, they found it relatively easy, I felt, to shut up shop. There were some nervy moments, definitely. Um, but I think in terms of the chances Colombia were actually able to create, they were pretty few and far between. Um, she just feels like she's really shaken off that sort of rustiness that we saw in those early games, Abdullah, and she's going to be so crucial going forward for this England side. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, like, nothing surprises me with Millie Bright anymore. She's probably the most consistent player for Chelsea and for England. 
and that's not even like an understatement or, or an overstatement in any case she literally is like you very rarely rarely see her put a foot wrong in the game let alone you know across several games in a in a season and in a tournament like this where we were you know she had that knee injury she was a bit iffy in that first game coming back from it but um the, the more the tournament has gone on the better she's become and you know i i've just really enjoyed i think her leadership just both from an on on pitch off the pitch i think has been really really good she she looks like she's got the the respect of the, of the back four even with greenwood bronze and daily who are super experienced obviously rachel's and, and Millie are like best friends anyway so there's that mutual respect there but for from lucy and from from alex i think it's it's just it's great to see that they they will like they will just listen like if Millie says something to move somewhere they would they would just do it there's that trust in that back five and i think her being able to maneuver a back five like that, I think is, um, even with Mary behind her, I think is is a testament to the way, uh, to the way Millie has played. And, you know, this is now, this is the, this is the standard, this is the bar. Like the fact that she's been so good is now for us to say that this is, this is standard Millie Bright. You know, I don't know where the next level is, but I am keen to see where that next level is for Millie Bright. Yeah, 100%. All right. Well, let's take a little ad break here and we will be back after this so the build-up to all of england's game came under the excitement of australia france which went from being i do think it was a dull affair just because it was a nil nil i did enjoy the match itself but the penalties ratcheted up the tension in a way that only a record penalty shootout in men's or women's world cup can do australia eventually prevailing seven six meaning england will meet australia in the semi-final, uh, the hosts up against the Euro 2022 champions. Um, let's just start by talking about this game in general because there was there were Chelsea players featuring, but they didn't get they didn't get going until a little bit later. Um, Abdullah, my initial impression of this game was that when two teams play four four twos against each other, it should probably be banned because it's so boring. They just totally neutralize each other. Hundred percent. I think I don't mind a four two four, but a four four two versus four four two is like have we gone back like fifty years to watch football again because that was the only the only formations that you had. No, I I agree. I think I think it it's literally one of the only formations in the game that when you play against each other, it's a literal it neutralizes you. It it's it's so difficult to play, and I think you just saw it in the way that. That, that both teams played. I think, yes, there were chances at both ends, but at the same time, it was like, yeah, okay, chances at both ends, but at the same time, but everything that happened in the middle was just kind of bog standard, all right, we're just going to try and play here. All the chances probably came on like transition moments going going both ways. And it was probably down to both defenses to to, to kind of say that I think I think France had the better first half. I think they played really well unless until that last five minutes of, you know, the 40 to 45th minute, which was just insane where they just gave up like three unbelievable chances that I think Mary Fowler should have put away. De Almeida, goal line clearances for fun. I mean, that was such a, first, I mean, that in itself was such a strange move, like out of nowhere, De Almeida playing at right back. And I was like, no, well, probably Lacrosse playing at right back. You know, no, no, no. De Almeida was the one playing at right back. And I was so confused. I'm like, I've never seen this while they're going to switch to a back three. And then Kershawi goes, no, it was a pure 4-4-2, Dalmeida going up right from right wing. And second half was just, I think the, the tension and the nerves of this game kind of just came more from the fact that it was just getting closer and closer to a goal that never happened. And towards the end, formation started just going out the window. And I think that's when it became a little bit more 
end to end. And obviously when Sam came on, which we'll get on to, was kind of a game change on his head. But yeah, 4-4-2 versus 4-4-2, at least initially, was just kind of like, okay, this is fine, but can we do something else? Yeah, definitely. It felt like the chaos was coming more from, like it was self-inflicted chaos from both of these teams. So lots of the stuff from Paulina Pero and Mannion was very strange, and that was kind of allowing Australia to have all these chances. Equally, it felt like Australia at points were giving the ball away and that was creating moments for um, France. I do think the day I made a goal and clearance aside and that Lacroix miss, which was also insane, um, it felt like the game really hinged on two substitutions, the first of which was for Australia and that was bringing Sam on. Um, so obviously we had brief 10-minute Sam in the round of 16, we got basically 60 minutes of Sam, 65 minutes effectively. Uh, last night, she played 35 normal time and then obviously all of extra time. I felt when she came on, Abdullah, even though I, I don't think she's fully fit, I think you can see that, it still felt like she immediately made a massive difference to this Australian side. Oh, so much so. I, I You know, you think what, what what's really done... What's really well done well for Australia this this tournament is that they found a way to win without Sam. And the fact that when she came on for those 60 minutes, 65 minutes effectively, you could see the difference even with a 60% fit Sam. Like the runs, the French defense, I think, just took two yards, stepped two yards back. And they um and and they were able to uh, they were able to um you know, they had to manage Sam Kerr and they had to manage the runs that she was making because not except for probably Lacroix and Karshawi, the other the other two aren't um aren't quick. And obviously Karshawi's playing way out on the left. Lacroix's the one up against Sam Kerr and that channel. She was the one who had to uh she was the one that had to um kind of mark Sam Kerr and make sure she wasn't there. And I and I felt like while they obviously struggled they also you know it was it was a mixture of I think a little bit of luck a little bit of good defending that they were able to kind of stop Sam Kerr from being there and I guess I, I you know to an extent maybe De Almeida was probably thrown at a right back as a, as a center back just because it, maybe I think France assumed that Kerr and Fowler would play up front and when you've got two quick players like that who both love running between the lines picking up the ball to feet in, in, in Mary Fowler they wanted to, to prevent that and have a 3v2 going into um going into the game and obviously they saw that Van Eggman started um, Van Eggman started over there uh, alongside Mary Fowler and obviously then that allowed Dale Mater to go forward but I think the true French tactic of kind of bringing in the three on the right hand side as, as, as like a back three almost only happened when Sam Kerr uh, came on but I mean if, if you've got a 60% Sam Kerr and you're reshuffling the opposition's back line without uh, and forcing them to bench their more their more natural right back and Yves Parisay then you know, you've got some influence over his side. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the the Yves Perisay decision as well, because I think this also ties into the, the French substitution, which I think changed things, which was Vicky Bechere coming on. Obviously, as as you kind of discussed, that there are understandable reasons to play Dale Mader, and I actually thought she played really well. Um, she can be a bit of a bozo sometimes, but I thought this was one of her better games. Um, I felt like where they really lacked, though... And this surprised me because I feel like Eve kind of offers you this is that they did then didn't really have the ability to go forward. They were like super limited because they're playing a centre back at right back. It meant everything had to go down the left with Kachawi and Basha. That's not a bad left wing at all, but it's so much easier for Australia just to sort of focus on those two players than it is from having a threat on the other side. 
Um, do you think it was worth it, like, having De Almeida there? Because I felt like when Besho came on, and suddenly, because they were obviously playing Kentadali as well, ahead of De Almeida, who's a midfielder, like a central midfielder, not a winger. And as soon as Besho came on, you saw this additional threat in terms of running at Catley. And at that point, I was like, okay, you were worried maybe about those runners in behind. You wanted to play all these centre-backs, but look, now you're seeing that the impetus that having a winger there allows. Why aren't you bringing on Perisay at that point? That was like what I really didn't get. I totally agree with you. I mean, for me, I was I was just very confused as to as to what the game plan. I thought I thought Herb Bernard. I think he left the the changes too late. I I I really wish he was a little bit more um, proactive in his changes because I think the minute you start seeing that, yes, the the, the Kershawi Basha left wing combination works and it did have its its moments. But if you when you were when you were on top, you were having the chances. Bring on a bit more of a natural right back, switch to a four three three, and then you probably then have a have a chance to play well. Because I mean, I would rather have Diani as a right winger coming inside and giving you that threat with the Somera up front and Basha at left wing, with Kenza Dali kind of coming inside and kind of playing her more natural central midfield position, and bring on Eve Parise for the ability to go forward and give you that natural width, then sticking to this four four two because. Yes, Van Egmond and 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 Fowler and and Goria. I think I think they were they were threats, but I think that was a point where they could have easily made the substitution earlier. I mean, you saw the minute the Besho came on, the amount of chances that France started having and getting on top in the game and during the second half, towards the latter half of the second half, I think was crazy. Even extra time, France had the better of the extra time, and even then, he just decided to to, to not um, to not change it. I think that's probably my only complaint with um, with the French is that. You either have to bring on a more natural winger or bring on Yves Perisay. Give yourself a natural back four. Give yourself a second point of attack. Because after 50, 60 minutes, an opposition is going to be like, well, if your only source of creativity and your only source of goals or, or goal contribution is coming from your from, from your one side of your team, of your pitch, well, all we'll do is just nullify that side because we know that your right back's not going to do anything because your right back's a centre-back. And your right midfielder is a central midfielder who's creative and, and is not very fast as well. So it's very easy for us to then shift and and kind of cover those spaces on that right-hand side. But the minute Besho came on, and and I think, I don't know if you noticed, both Selma Besho and Besho kept switching sides towards that extra time. And, and the second half, they were both constantly switching and, and playing. And it was causing Australia so many issues. And to me, that I felt like you make that Besho and, and Paris Aid change early on in the game, then... I don't see I don't see how France don't score that. Yes, Lacar missed a couple of chances, <clears throat> but when you're looking at the rest of them, then yeah, it's very easy. So I think I think there was a big miss um, by not playing Perisse and Besho and bringing them on earlier. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I w- I would really agree. I think I think what you you said there as well about like maybe changing formations. I felt like both managers seemed very risk averse. And I understand that. I understand why they both sort of ended up almost playing for penalties or or wanting to keep the structure that they had for the whole, uh, the whole tournament. But to me, that just felt like an opportunity where maybe if someone had taken more risks, they could have got the reward. Obviously, at the end of the day, Tony Gustafsson got the reward regardless because it did go to penalties. Ten penalties each were taken. Australia eventually coming out on top seven six. Eve Perse did come on for the penalties and she did miss hers. I think again, just 
a reflection on why, for me, it always feels silly to bring players on just for penalties, especially if they have the ability to play earlier on in the match. It's just very hard, I think, to be, you know, up to speed to have that be the first time you kick a football or even the first or second time you kick a football. Sam Kerr, though, even though I literally couldn't watch this, she did score her penalty. It wasn't the world's best penalty, but Sam Kerr is not the world's best penalty taker. Um, obviously, Abdullah, this tournament has been a frustration for her. Like, understandably, she would have wanted to be playing way more. She would have wanted to be leading the team out. But it felt like in that moment, at least, you know, she got to make a very tangible contribution. OK, it's a contribution that probably was dwarfed by what Mackenzie Arnold managed to do during the penalty shootout, um, like making all those saves. Um, but I felt like that was a really amazing moment for Sam and it means they get another game and, and she gets the opportunity to play more minutes of the World Cup and I guess potentially to even start. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think um I think the uh the way they played yesterday I think was good. I think you could just I think you could tell that the crowd played a huge um a, a huge factor in the penalty shootout you know where they played from the, while more experienced french players were able to cope with it your wendy renard your listen mares diani's they scored the goals but it was the younger players that i think they they, they started feeling it a little bit um i thought sakina kershawi's penalty was probably the best of the lot of all of them was right up into the top which was brilliant um but um yeah the way mackenzie arnold just looked like she just commanded that that goal every time she stepped on the line. Even if she let it in, it just it just felt like she was, um, you know, she was she was she looked like she was going to save it. And obviously, she missed her own penalty uh, going into it. It hit the post. I mean, the amount of times it went back and forth was was crazy. Yeah, Eve Perisse coming on to do it. I think you're. I would. You know what? If you're going to do that, I would bring these players on with maybe three, two, three, four minutes to go before the end of that extra time because you need to give them almost a couple of minutes just to get used to the game, get them in, get them get them to touch the ball a little bit, not just like as soon as they've come on, it's straight, full blast, a full-time whistle, go and take a penalty, right? And obviously, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, I felt like France's goalkeeping switch, I think, was probably the good, better move. She, Durand is, is known as a penalty penalty box, uh, penalty saver, sorry, uh, shot stopper. Um, so I think she had a couple of good saves. Even Sam, I mean, she almost saved Sam's penalty, like you said. It, it, she went the right way. She got her hand to it, but, you know, it just kind of slipped under her. Um, and yeah, no, I think, I think overall, I, I think Australia probably maybe then just deserved it at the end of the day, just, just a little bit. They got through, they're going to play in a, in a, in a, in a, in a semifinal of the world cup. We're good. We've gotten the England's men's ashes in the cricket. We've got the women's ashes in the cricket. And now we're going to get the football version of the ashes in, in a world cup semifinal. So, I'm coming uh, for my moral <laughs> that's, victory. Uh, that's going to be one to, to watch. So yeah. <laughs> need to take it this time we need to take it this time i have done an almighty drinks there guys um i went to the shops today and i bought an australia shirt with sam Kerr's name on the back which nice i shouldn't have done before the england game because now it means we will lose but i'm just if australia beat england like there's it's already quite hard to find an australia shirt in australia I'm, I didn't want to risk it. How'd you find it? <laughs> I went to the Nike store. Um, I didn't want to risk it. So I have got that. And if England leaves, I guess I'll be ready to wear my Sam Kerr shirt at the final. Um, all right. We'll take another ad break here and we'll come back in a second and we'll talk about those other two quarterfinals. 
So on the other side of the draw in New Zealand, which makes the other side of the draw feel genuinely quite far away because I've not been to New Zealand this tournament. So it feels like it's happening in a different strange land. I've not seen any of these teams play so far, um, whereas I've seen England and Colombia and Australia a couple of times. Though, although I didn't actually get to see France in the end. Um, Spain versus Netherlands. Spain coming out on top 2-1 in extra time in the end. Um, this was a really interesting game. I thought both these, the Spain-Netherlands game and Sweden-Japan game were really interesting matches of tactical, like, style. And it felt like each team sort of benefited from what the other couldn't do so well. Netherlands, I think, obviously went into this one having rejigged their midfield. They were missing Daniela van der Donk. Damaris came in instead, sort of players as six. We had Jackie Gronen, man-marking Aitana. Um, it wasn't in like the midfield, I don't think really works in the end. Um, and I think that's hard to sort of blame Andreas Jonker for because he had to do something without Daniela van der Donk. I think what really didn't work though, which I will blame Jonker for because I felt like it was coming, um, for large portions of the tournament is how weak that right-hand side of the Netherlands defence looked. That Victoria Pullover, Sherida Spitzer, defensive element. Spain were just able to run ragged, and I do not understand how it was nil-nil at half-time. I don't understand how it was nil-nil after 81 minutes. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, I uh, obviously this kicked off very, very early in my time. I only got to really catch the second half, but just when I saw the score and I kept reading Twitter and... Um, what was really happening? I, I was surprised as to how neither team scored. It was it was it was pretty intense. Um, I thought Spain played well. I think I think to an extent. I think I think the Dutch they they did what they were going to do. They've got a strong support. They've got a strong defense, and uh, Stephanie Van der Graat is 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 probably one of the better defenders that they have. Um, but it was it was a strange one. I think both teams have the firepower to. To score goals, obviously, like you said, I think Daniela van der Donk with that creativity playing as that number 10, I think was a huge miss because not only does she give you the creativity of on the ball, but I think she just gives you a bit of that physicality and, and, and that really that, that aggressiveness that the Dutch needed in, in midfield. And that would have done wonders against the likes of Aitana and kind of limiting her spaces and kind of going from there. And I think maybe, maybe I think, I think, and maybe we've seen this across all of the um, quarterfinals to an extent, I think it was just cautiousness from from both sides right you don't want to be the one to give up the first goal because then you know that you're going to be chasing the game and it's much harder to chase a game than it is to to uh, to win it so I, I i probably think a little bit of that played in but i think as you get into extra time and, and again both the france game and obviously the spain one as well you start seeing teams just sort of towards the end of the game going all right let's just throw the kitchen sink and let's just see what happens. I mean, was, they literally played Stephanie Van der Graat as a striker and she she had a bet. She probably finished better than 60% of the strikers at this World Cup. Like that was an unreal finish from Van der Graat. So um, I think the game only really, really kicked off, like you said, 81 minute plus, And then that's when it started really getting fun. So, uh, but yeah, I think uh, in the end, Spain showed their, uh, I think Spain are slowly, slowly, maybe finally arriving at this World Cup. Yeah, I thought Spain were very, very good. Um, and Stephanie van der Graat, I feel, scored the equaliser over sheer force of will. Obviously, she conceded the penalty <laughs> and was then put up front. 
Van der Graaff going up front was when Anik Nouwen entered the field. And I initially thought maybe Nouwen was going to go up front, but I think it was wiser to put Van der Graaff up front. Um, but it also just meant the Dutch were shifting a lot of things around. And I actually felt like the Dutch probably in extra time had the better chances. Um, I thought Linda Berenstein played well, even though she couldn't finish, um, which was unfortunate because that is the important bit of her job. Um, but we should talk about Nouwen. Uh, she wasn't great when she came in against the US and here, I don't know what, where she thought she was showing Salma Paruelo for this Spanish winner. I don't know where she was going or what she was doing. Uh, but absolutely, like, this was a really poor bit. We've talked about Jess Carter's amazing 1v1 defending. This was very poor 1v1 defending from Anik Noun. If we're talking about Jess Carter having to start for Chelsea on the back of the last six months plus the World Cup, then I think we've got to say that this is probably showing why Anik Noun isn't going to start for Chelsea off the last six months and this World Cup. Because, yes, you've only been given 10 minutes, of, or 10 minutes, like normal time and an extra time, but... When you give away a 1v1 like that, I mean, Salma's quick, but I think Anik has the, the pace to keep up with Salma. She's not lightning quick. And the way she was just able to kind of get past her, kind of drive past and, and take that shot was, I think, was a little bit of inexperience shown over there. And it looked like somebody who hasn't played a lot of minutes for the national team and, you know, looked uh, looked a little bit rusty. And, you know, it, it like you said, with Linus Bernstein, it, it, it comes down to how you finish. Sal Salma comes on equally off the bench. Takes has a couple of chances, finishes off one of hers, and and Spain qualify. And I think I also do think that the, the formation and and the, the 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 madness of extra time didn't help. I think it was just chaotic and and an extra time with players just kind of playing everywhere and trying to create chances and and and, and do all of that. So to an extent, I I can I can give Anik saying that maybe the formation and everything wasn't there, but one v one defending. I think if 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 you're playing as an outside center, I mean an outside center back or someone who it's is coming up against a winger who's showing you what you can show on the outside. You've got to be able to defend that post and and be able to um to, to defend that area. And I think it was it was just down to those those few moments and Spain did what Spain do. Yeah. Uh, I think a frustrating one if if you're Dutch. Um quick shout out for Daphne Van Domsela. Oh my gosh. We knew it already, but Aston Villa have got a real one for next season. She was fantastic in this game, kept Netherlands in it for probably far longer than they deserved to. Let's switch over then to Sweden, Japan. A bit more Chelsea action in this one. Obviously, Zatira Musevic starting a goal, Jana Ritten Kanarid playing as well. We even got some surprise Micah Hamano moments at the end. Um, something that was a bit unexpected. She was the only outfield player not to have played for Japan this World Cup. So it was nice to see her, but we were seeing her in tears. Um, I think the pictures of Jonna Anderson comforting her were, were very, very heart-wrenching. Obviously, those two played together at Hamby at the moment. Uh, but yeah, Japan lost 2-1 to Sweden. This game, Abdullah, really kind of simply hinged on the fact that Sweden are good at set pieces and... Japan on and you know Japan wanted to try and sit back I think like they had against Spain and hit Sweden on the counter but I think one Sweden's defense is better than Spain's and two Sweden said it fine we'll just play long balls over the top and they looked really threatening in that way as well um it's a bit of a surprise because I think lots of people thought Japan had maybe a really good shot at, at winning this thing um but ultimately I don't know if you think this might maybe this is a bit too simplistic but it just felt like Sweden's bigger tournament experience won out at the end. 
Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it was it was really down to that because I think overall Sweden have played well, but they've not played at their best the entire tournament. And I think this game came came down to experience versus well the informed team. I think a lot of people after the last game thought that Japan would probably could get you know head to the semi final, even the final, and maybe you know reclaim back the the World Cup title, but. I think I think you just hit the nail on the head. I think I think with with Sweden it just came down to their big players. You know your Fridolin Rolfos and and uh, Blackstenius they just came through and they were able to, you know they were able to to kind of come through. Know they've been in these moments. They know how to to, to 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 take pressure and and kind of go from there. And I think they they played a clean game. They they just they just did what they had to do. And I think for them it's just about getting through. And that's what tournament football is to an extent, right? You don't have to be great. You just need to win the game. Right? And then it just it's just go to the next and go to the next and and you don't have to be the best team in the tournament to be able to go and win it. Like at the end of the day, same thing with England, right? And same thing with Sweden. I think the the, the similarities there are both haven't the both didn't start well in their groups. They got through. They 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 play played their round of sixteen. They got through. They played the quarterfinals and they got through. But no one is if one of them wins the World Cup, no one is going to remember their run through the World Cup, right? Everyone's just going to say they won the World Cup. They did what they had to do and they did it. And so I think at the end of the day, that's it. I mean, Japan, probably the most informed team, the one with the biggest and most obvious tactical identity of all the teams in this World Cup. Everyone's praising them for their back three and their wing backs and the way they were playing. But, you know, when it came down to, I think, these these clutch moments, it just Sweden came through and, and they did what they did. So props to Sweden for doing it. I, I, I think they've they probably they played well and you know they're they're always they're always that one team threatening to win a major tournament and they they usually just fall at the final hurdle will it happen again i don't know we're going to get an england sweden final i don't know but um yeah i'm i'm excited to see these 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 uh semifinals and and we go from there i think i might have to take two days off from work or call in sick for two days because there's no way i'm missing these yeah i think you got to call in sick um yeah just on a on the chelsea note chiron busevich seems to have done some kind of spell on the goal. She did concede here, um, but she somehow managed to make someone else miss a penalty uh, without actually saving one yet. Um, she had a couple of strange moments. The the penalty that Sweden got, Musevic um, was running around all the way outside her area, but we got to forget about that because it was called back for the, for the handball um, on Fukunaganu. Uh so that that was a bit of an odd one. Um and even the the goal Japan eventually scored had sort of come off the back of Musevich's head from a free kick at some point. Uh but anyway, she seems to be having a really good time and I love that for her. Uh Johanna Ritten Canared I think was fine in this game. Um Sweden played through her a lot on that right hand side and I think she looked good without looking exceptional. Uh, Michael Hermano, my review would be, you could tell she hadn't played football in a really long time, but I'm glad she got minutes. Um, okay, let's wrap this up with a little bit of predictions. We are guaranteed a Chelsea player in the final, no matter what, because we have Chelsea players in England and Australia camp. Uh, obviously, if Sweden get to the final, we will have more Chelsea players uh, in the final. Spain, if you're a Chelsea fan, if you're any fan, don't be supporting Spain. Um, <laughs> sorry. Any hey, Alejandra, Alejandra by, by extension. Alejandra by extension. They didn't call her up. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. <laughs> okay, Guys, fine, you got to call fine, up a Chelsea fine. player if you want me to support <laughs> you. Sorry. Anyone looking to get my affections, you know, they need to look at what Australia have done. Got me buying an Australian shirt before a semi-final against my own team. You're tempting me to get an Australian shirt now. They're nice. I like them. I like them. Also... 
bumped into Linda Caicedo in the shop. So that was fun too. Fun story nice. of the day. Um, let's do some predictions. I am going to go for an England-Sweden final just because I've got to back England to undo my Sam Kerr Australia shirt jinx and I really don't want Spain to win. So it's not prediction so much as a dream, but Sweden-England final. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. Sweden England final for me. That's that's let's let's get a repeat of the Euros of the Euro game and let's go again. And I hope if that is the final, it goes the way of that Euros game because that was delightful. Um, and it will help me as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It will help me as well. Let's go England. There we go. We've got our semi-finals are set. England play Australia on Wednesday. Spain are up against Sweden on Tuesday. Whatever happens, there will also be a team in the final who's never been to a World Cup final before because neither England nor Australia have. Whatever happens, a new team is lifting the World Cup trophy. So it's all incredibly exciting. Um, really, really looking forward to, to see what happens next. Uh, Abdullah, it was lovely to be back on a podcast with you. As always, of course, same, same with you. Hopefully, we can find a little bit of time to reconvene after the semi-finals, do a little bit of a preview ahead of the final, and, and check in again on our Chelsea gals. Let's do it. All right, that sounds good. Um, I'm staying up till 1.30am Australian time to watch the men, so guys, please don't let me down. You'll all know what's happened by the time you listen to this. Uh, we'll be back after the semi-finals. Until then, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs> <laughs>